Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So I want you to go vote. I want you to go vote. Did I mention I want you to go vote? Look at it this way, folks. If dead people can do it, so can you. Is there anyone better than John Kennedy? There's no one. There's no one better than Senator John Kennedy. Of course, you have the election tomorrow, the special election. The Senator Raphael Warnock, Democrat against Herschel Walker, the Republican, the Georgia runoff. I'm not sharing any polling with you. I have no idea what's going to happen. People are talking about people aren't showing up for Herschel Walker. If you say so, Democrats have Barack Obama showing up. I don't know if that man moves a vote at all. No idea if that's the case. I've got uh, former Senator Doug Jones uh, of Alabama. He's uh, trying to explain that the reason this race is tight is because of tribalism. No, no, I'm really not surprised, Chris. And the reason is the very reason that Charlie just talked about. And that is the fact that in the South, right now, you have teams. You got a red team, you got a blue team, and people don't always go across. The reason that this is that close is because of the tribalism uh, in Georgia, like it is in so many states in the South. The difference, though, is that over the last 10 or 12 years, the Democratic Party of Georgia led by Stacey Abrams, have really tried to build up the party and reach out to, to build a broader coalition. That's the main difference I see in the Walker campaign versus the Warnock campaign. Sure. If you, if, if you think she's built up the Democratic coalition, that's great. She's built it up so much that she's lost two gubernatorial races in a row. But if you want to blame tribalism, I think a lot of people will believe you. It's about tribalism. And honestly, the Democrats shouldn't be so tribal. I'm sorry, is that not how the way this works? I could have sworn this was how the way this works. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What's going on, everybody? 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. I have the full breakdown of the Twitter madness. I mean, I have got every last bit of it in every single way. Uh, So much so um, that it's... (laughs) I I don't actually think I can get to everything, and I'm not 100% sure that I should. But when I see a story like this that has Yoel Roth, the former senior director and head of trust and safety at Twitter, saying that what Elon Musk is doing by releasing internal communications is um, endangering lives, then I know it's the absolutely right thing to do and I'm glad it's being done and I should talk about it. So let's start from the beginning. As we know, Twitter was involved in preventing communications. Twitter purposefully, 
acted to keep certain people from speaking on their platform and certain subjects from being discussed on their platform. We know this because Elon Musk, who now owns Twitter after paying $44 billion for it, gave documents to Matt Taibbi. Matt Taibbi is a former Rolling Stone reporter. I wouldn't call Matt Taibbi a friend. Matt Taibbi and I would probably agree on very little. But Matt Taibbi, in that, in that vein of, of Barry Weiss and, and, and a host of others, have been very well engaged in the idea that speech must be free. People must be able to engage, otherwise we are lost. The idea that Glenn Greenwald and I could agree on much um, is, is laughable. But that Glenn Greenwald has been very, very clear that the political left is abusive of speech and doesn't believe in speech doesn't believe in people having the ability to speak out if they should disagree. Well, that's very, very important. And that is also foreshadowing. Note the subject at hand, the top line. The top line is about the ability to engage freely. And the political left says no. Now, we're not debating this. The political left says no to engaging in speech freely. The political right says yes. That difference is clear. I would doubt you would find across the main people who believe that you can threaten physical harm against others. But if you think that putting up a uh, a video that was posted showing the absurdity of the thing they're talking about is violence, well, you're a mental patient. And that's being kind, because I can't think of right now the best word to use. Yoel Roth, the former head of safety, was saying that people like Libs of TikTok, you know this the account Libs of TikTok, she takes crazy things uh, and radical things that progressives say on, on TikTok, and she, po- she reposts them. That's all she does. No editing, just reposting of what people are putting out there. Yoel Roth, Y-O-E-L is his name, like Joel, but with a Y, Yoel Roth, says that that is an attack, that is targeting, that is violence. It's sharing what somebody else already said, which is exactly what the retweet button is all about on Twitter. He also said that the Babylon Bee is not funny. The Babylon Bee is engaged in attacks. It's a satire site. It's the onion, but funny. Well, the onion used to be funny, and then that went away. You see, when they do it, it's fine, but when you do it, it's an attack. That concept comes up over and over and over again. The documents show, without debate, that Twitter proactively censored the Hunter Biden laptop story and prevented other people from speaking about it. And you say to me, yeah, Tony, we know that. But you didn't know that they put it under their rules against hacking. Well, wait a second. Nothing was hacked. Aha. They didn't care that nothing was hacked. They said, we need to put the kibosh on this story. We will make the claim that it is hacked. And then in backup come 51, 51, the dirty 51, I heard somebody call it, uh, of these experts to say why why this this laptop story, this has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. They lied. John Brennan and James Clapper and Peter Strzok and Andrew McCabe and the rest, they all lied. Every single one of them lied. 
to interfere and place the thumb on the scale in a U.S. election. Because this story was coming out just as the election was coming down uh, to, to election day. It shows these documents from the computer that was abandoned by Hunter Biden at that computer repair shop in Delaware. That Biden was getting, uh, Hunter Biden was getting jobs in Ukraine, jobs with China and creating these deals all because of his last name, trading on his father's last name and trading opportunities to connect with and engage with access to his father. This is what happened. That's not debatable. When Joe Biden said he had nothing to do with, didn't know anything about his son's uh, overseas business dealings, that was a lie. It was always a lie because Joe Biden is a liar. Joe Biden is a worse liar than Donald Trump. Take me on, kids. I got no time for the silly folk. 833-468-8669. 833-GOT-TONY. Joe Biden lies all the time. He lies about what he did in school. He lies about corn pop. He lies about the constitutionality of his arguments. This is what he does. When he's not being smug, rude, and disgusting, he's lying. Oh, oh, I've had enough of pretending that Joe Biden is somehow a decent guy. The only thing I can say about that man is that he loves his son. And it can't be easy having a son who has the level of of issues that Hunter has. However, Hunter is an adult, and I'm not about to allow him to hide behind his drug use and say I can't talk about all the other things he was doing. He was selling access to his father, and Joe Biden not only knew it, but he seems very well to be fine with it. Let's go back. Let's go back to the fact that Twitter invented a reason, this hacked material reason, to stop the story from going forward. Not only did they do that, they applied the same type of punishments they do to those people who may be involved in sharing child pornography. They prevented the links from working. They said, you cannot share this story, and if you put a link out, we will make sure it doesn't work. That is the level to to which Twitter went. When this started getting out, Twitter executives said, um, yeah, this ain't going to work. Uh, this, this is this is not Has anybody looked at this? This is not going to work. You're going to use hacked materials? What are you, out of your mind? And that was it. That's all they said. And the powers that be patted people on the head. Now you say to me, Tony, the powers that be, who in the work world are the powers that be? Yoel Roth was one of those powers. Uh, Vijaya Gade, I think I'm pronouncing her name right. She was an executive at Twitter. She was the top lawyer. And it's very clear that she played the key role in saying, you know, we'll just call it hacked and preventing these conversations from getting out. And she was doing so while keeping things from the CEO, Jack Dorsey. According to how Matt Taibbi explains the documents, it was clear to him, for the most part, that Jack Dorsey did not have any say in what was happening. This was done without him knowing and when he found out, he couldn't un-F um, 
what had happened. Now, I must tell you that I have absolutely no compassion for Jack Dorsey. In my view, he is guilty. Other people might see that one differently. But the very top people at Twitter were working to silence this story. It is also worth noting that the Democratic Party had direct lines to people all over Twitter and could get stories stopped to get stories, prevent, to prevent stories from getting on to the social media, prevent them from being shared. As a matter of fact, they had direct lines to be able to stop people from participating on Twitter. One of those people is the actor James Woods. Now, this is where some people want to engage in the idea of sophistry. I think one of the great words and great terms, I don't know if you know what sophistry is. Sophistry is a plausible but fallacious argument. So as I've always had it described, sophistry is taking a grain of truth and then building a falsehood around it or applying it into a place where it's not accurate. So for example, if someone were to say, well, what these Twitter files proves is that the government was acting in collusion with big business to silence a political party and political thought. The sophist would say, Donald Trump was president at the time. The government wasn't working with them. And then you would say, is that right? Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. I hate Nazis. These people are so remarkably full of crap as to be believed. If you want to engage the idea that the Democratic Party is not quasi-government, like the Republican Party, would be a massive amount of power colluding with the tech company to silence political opposition so they could gain control of the presidency, the Senate, and the House of Representatives, if that's not the same to you as the government doing this, you are a ridiculous, shallow, daft, ignorant person. You shouldn't be allowed to operate heavy machinery, never mind have children. Of course it's the same thing. And Democrats had open lines to people all over Twitter to silence me, you, maybe your mom. But they'll tell you, well, no, 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 because Trump was president. Yeah, it's, that's a... That's not a story. James Woods, by the way, is going to sue. Uh, I think that's good. Oh, uh, another lawsuit. Just throw it on there. Just throw it on there. Don't forget, the lawyers are still making money, guys. You might want to think about law. So we know what it is that Twitter did. And some people want to go down the route of what's the big bombshell here? What's the big bombshell? Allow me to tell you. Is it the revelation? Nope. It's that so many people on the political left don't give a damn. They don't care what illicit, gross, disgusting, despicable, low-rent, low-class thing that Twitter did as long as it got them the White House because for the political left, the ends justify the means. And I dare any progressive in the sound of my voice to challenge me on that one. This is what happened with Twitter. Don't you engage a single bit about whataboutism. I will tell you some things you might not want to hear. This, if you ever wanted to know the level 
to which the duplicity goes, that the ends justify the means, it's this story, and that's the bombshell. Now, some people will be like, yeah, I don't see it. Well, congratulations. You're too cute by half. You're such an intellectual. You don't understand how ugly this is? Well, don't worry, because there's more. There's more to how ugly this is, including how Matt Taibbi, a guy I disagree with, is being responded to by so-called journalists. I'll get to that story. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. I always found it weird that I had a PayPal account. I mean, if you guys know my history at all, you know I come from the world of merchant services, of credit card processing. That's what I was doing before I got into into radio. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. And and so my, my, my parents have been in that business for a, a long time. And uh, my, my brother, the good Dr. Katz, is like, you know what? Medicine's nice, but... And he's doing. He does this right, so I know this this world pretty well. You know, businesses that want to accept credit card processing. I, I know this. Help people. I don't. I don't like. I don't sell. Like I'm. I'm a little busy with a thing. But I. I've got like unique clients. I guess. I guess it's a way to put it. And I really do like some consulting. I help out my father. I help out my brother. Just, you know, answer answer questions and thoughts, things like that. And it's always weird to me that because of that, I've got a PayPal account. But, you know, sometimes it's helpful. It's the way people do things. It's simple. Okay, I get it. Well, now, as we know, the IRS has decided that earnings over $600 have to be reported. So PayPal is in the narc business. That's what they're doing. You did this. You had this transaction. We're going to share that with the IRS. None of this is, is acceptable. It's totally aimed at people who are in the gig economy. Why are we bothering them? Let them, let them, you know, uh, engage in, in, in driving or, or working as a bartender or doing whatever. Stop paying attention to it. Oh, no, no, no. The federal government has to get every single last dollar, don't you know? It's gross and it's wrong. And so away will go my... Uh, my PayPal, and I'll just set up an account of my own, and that'll be it. That'll be it. Set up my little uh, secure gateway and set up my uh, virtual terminal. Be all good. Because this is nuts and wrong. It's just wrong and unnecessary. And I know, I know, it's it's just a start. I'm Tony Katz. <laughs> Ranks is one of the top news stories, but I got a kick out of it. This Washington Post story about racism is glorious. Absolutely glorious. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Love to hear from you. 833-GOT-TONY. 833-468-8669. That is the number. 833-GOT-TONY. Ryan will take your phone call. Let me know who's on the line. Before I get to the racism story... This was actually astute 
from Jen Psaki over there at NBC about what Democrats are trying to do with the primary calendar. They want to move Iowa out of being first. They want to move Iowa out. They want to move Nevada up. Biden wants to move South Carolina up. And they want to do this. Why? Because starting with uh, New Hampshire and Iowa is, uh, you know, um, racist. These are sort of contests that won't really matter that much, but it does matter who shows up at the convention. Mm -hmm. But he would put South Carolina first, then Nevada and New Hampshire would be on the same day, the Tuesday after, Georgia a week later, and then the early window closes with Michigan. Um, The South Carolina thing caught everybody by surprise. I think Nevada thought it was going to be the first in the nation. What happened? So did the CBC think Nevada was going to be first in the nation. Uh, Look, I think Joe Biden, my former boss, loves South Carolina. He is sitting in the White House today because of South Carolina. That is probably why it's first. Go with the voters that brought you. That's right. I do think from talking to a lot of Democrats who are involved in this process, what they see this as is the February group of states that is bringing geographic diversity, Mm -hmm. demographic diversity, and that it's more aligned with where the electorate is today. What is also true, as you know, Chuck, because you watch this closely, is that this is just the beginning of the process, Mm -hmm. and they have to present, these state legislatures have to approve the moving of the date, and so the Georgia Secretary of State has already said he won't do that. Is New Hampshire really not going to be first? I'm skeptical there. So there's a long battle to go here. There is a very long battle to go here. But this whole conversation about who starts first in the primaries is all because, you see, fl- uh, relying on Iowa and New Hampshire, not Florida, Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, it's, it's, it's racist because it's just too many white people. Okay. Knock yourself out. I-, I have often stated that there's absolutely no rule that Iowa has to be first. I once attended a conference where I was a speaker discussing the fact that I think I, this is over a decade ago, that Iowa does a very bad job of explaining why it should be first in the nation. And then I discussed the fact that one of the things um, that they have to do is discuss how connected they are. Living in the Midwest, as, as I do, as you may uh, well do, it has offered up some tremendous opportunities for understanding. And, and I have always known in my travels that people who come from the East Coast and stayed on the East Coast, they have a very limited view of the world, very, very limited in scope. They think everything begins and ends with the East River and ends with the Hudson River. They have no capacity to understand that there is life outside of Hoboken. If you're not in Manhattan, you're in the Hamptons. Otherwise, what are you doing? Oh, you went to Paris. Good for you. Good for you. There is no realization that the world exists out there. And that is from my anecdotal observations up close. What I noticed from people who live in the Midwest is that they were far more connected, far more connected. They may know less about Haute Couture. They may know less about the latest artwork going on in the museum, but they certainly knew much more about how the world functions, how business functions, and where the opportunities were. 
And part of the reason that I've always discovered from that and, and asked myself why this was, was that in New York, there was never a question of driving up to Boston. That actually happened rarely. You didn't see signs in New York for Boston. You barely saw signs in New York for Connecticut. Or the only signs for Jersey was Lincoln Tunnel, Holland Tunnel, uh, GW Bridge. How you getting out? Right? How you getting out of the city? You live in Indianapolis. There's a sign every day everywhere you drive. Uh, St. Louis is this way. Cincinnati's that way. Louisville's that way. Chicago's that way. That's very different. Because when you observe that, what you're observing is that there's a Cincinnati and a Louisville and a St. Louis and a Chicago. Four cities, four states, all within driving distance, chock full of people. Places that you could, would, and want to go because the connectivity makes it so inviting. It never dawned on anyone, and I'll use this, maybe I just had a a sheltered family that really saw New York as the beginning and the end, and I, I think that that's true. No one ever said, let's go to Boston for the weekend. It didn't get said. And it didn't get said amongst friend groups. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm giving an anecdotal. Here, it is very often discussed Chicago for the weekend, Cincinnati to catch a a, a Reds game, heading down to Louisville, uh, going over to St. Louis, doing this, doing it. But everybody's going everywhere. When I spend time in in Iowa and friends in in Iowa, they're Kansas City Chiefs fans. I didn't know that. Didn't dawn on me that there would be any kind of fan. They're Kansas City Chiefs fans. But of course, it's always cool. Like if you got nothing else to do, and and I don't know, Iowa's not you know playing anybody worthwhile. You can head over to Nebraska. What do you mean head over to Nebraska? Now, to the extent it happened all the time, no. But the fact that it was so prevalent, the ability, Minnesota, bloop, right there. What? You would drive to Minnesota on purpose? That is still uh, a bit of, of anathema to me. But this idea of connectivity, it's easy to get from point A to point B. As a matter of fact, you want to get from point A to point B. As a matter of fact, you want to build those relationships between point A and point B because those relationships will help you grow. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Extremely important. The Midwest, I believe, has always done a better job because they, by nature, engage more connectivity. Now, I'm not going to argue that everybody is therefore friendly. I can tell you that in my six years in in California, I think it was six years in California, yeah, um, people were friendlier. And you say to me, Tony, that's not possible. It's not that people aren't lovely in Indiana. It's that Indiana was a harder nut to crack in terms of making friends and people who I I, I consider friends and happy to call up and happy to share time with, etc. Everybody in Indiana would put their hand up in a wave and say hi, but very few people would put their hand out in a handshake and say hi. It is true that to this day, we have friends 
whose houses I have never been invited to. The most unbelievable thing to me in the world. When my wife and I got here, if you came over, come in, can we get you a drink? You want coffee? You need a snack? What? Are you kidding? We're feeding you. We're drinking. Sit down. What do you do? Please relax. You know how many times? Oh, I, I'm spilling the tea now. Hot damn. You know how many times going to pick up one of the kids who's playing? Not even welcomed in the house. I have to chalk that up to something cultural. Because uh, I could chalk it up to, you know what? Nobody wants me in their house. Very possible. But my rule of thumb is, if you don't like me, I totally get it. You know what? I'm not for everybody. I sleep just fine. If you don't like my wife, there's something wrong with you. That is my, that is my indicator. You don't like her? I don't need to know you. I'm fine. Hey, hey, no, no, no. No, just don't, don't get up. I'm not, I'm not coming over to say hello. Just, I'm just not. That's that's the way it is. There be rules. Indiana, everybody had their friend group. Much more tight-knit than any place we ever lived. People went to high school together, and then they went to IU or Purdue together, and they the kids grew up, and we came in, uh, you know, younger kids, but they're not in the, 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 the baby ages, and uh, it was harder. It, it, it was harder to do. In Los Angeles... Everybody was a transplant or is transient, and they were looking to make friends. But there's no doubt that the Midwest, I have met more uh, successful people. I have met more successful minds. I have met more um, uh, valued minds than I ever did on the East Coast. Ever, ever, ever did. And it is that connectivity. So when I see the Democratic Party try and push the idea that you got to have this, this geographic diversity because that's where, you know, it, it's at, I, I smile. No one says that Iowa has to be first, except, of course, the people of Iowa. You can have South Carolina first. But when you start by referring to a state as bigoted, I think that's a really, really bad play. And I think that, as we heard from Jen Psaki, she makes a solid point. New Hampshire is not going to give up being first without a fight. Georgia is not going to move. Brad Raffensperger, the Republican Secretary of State, is not going to move the primary. That seems highly unlikely. And then, of course, there has to be a question asked. Let's say you have South Carolina and Nevada as your first two. Let's say those are your first two states in determining a nominee. Are they going to determine a nominee that works for the rest of the country? Are they going to pick a nominee who is more diverse or more woke? If you told me that the Democrats were going to, from here on out, pick black women as their candidates, nothing would surprise me, and I'd say fine. What does that matter? But they're going to pick the most woke, the most leftist, the most progressive, the most uh, pro-socialism uh, of the candidates. How is that going to work for the rest of the country? Because there are pockets of progressivism and socialists did well in this election. It is not a nationwide phenomenon. 
So as far as I'm concerned, let the Democrats make any change they want. It may bite them in the end. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. The Dow is down over 300. This is a weird headline. Fears the Fed will keep tightening into a recession. Where the hell have you been? Where in the world have you been? I think that's the weirdest, weird, just a weird headline. Of course they're going to keep tightening. They've said so. How do you not know this until now? Super duper weird story. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Guys, always a pleasure. By the way, oil prices, um, they were up a little bit. Right now, both the West Texas and the Brent are down about a buck and a half. Brent crude is at $84 and West Texas at 78 Certainly uh, better than the $100 prices that we were seeing. I wouldn't mind them uh, continuing the downslide. No idea. No idea how that's going to all play out. But it's going to get affected by Russia because you had a series of nations, including the, the, the whole of the European Union, saying they were going to cap what they would pay for Russian oil. They say, we're not paying any more than $60 a barrel. And you're like, wait, you're still buying Russian oil? And they're like, shh, don't tell. Because we all said we were going to be tough and not take Russian oil. We were, going to, we were going to sanction Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. And then they all said, oh, yeah, that's right. We want our cars to work and we want to heat our homes. We'll take that Russian oil. Oh, it's going to get chilly in Europe. Wait till you see what people in the northeast of the United States are paying. So these nations said, we're not going to pay more than $60 a barrel for Russian oil. And the Russians said, no, we won't sell you our oil. From this year, Europe will live without Russian oil. Moscow has already made it clear that it will not supply oil to those countries that support anti-market price caps. Wait, very soon, the EU will accuse Russia of using oil as a weapon. Well, of course they will. Well done, well played. But I'm not going to listen to Russia Tell me about being uh, good with markets. What a silly, silly thing to say. Now, the Ukrainians, they're upset because you're like, $60? No, no, you don't pay more than $30 for that Russian oil. You got to cripple their economy. What else do you expect the Ukrainians to say? They're the ones getting uh, hurt and harmed and damaged and attacked and killed. They want this to stop. They want the. They don't want Russia to be able to have anything happen to them in a, in a positive. They want Russia to be destroyed. Now, this oil conversation is very reminiscent of, of Reagan. De- defeating the Russians and winning the Cold War was about bringing the oil down to such a low number in terms of cost by flooding the markets that Russia couldn't make any money and therefore it was over. That's what Reagan did. He utilized the the markets to absolutely obliterate, obliterate the Russians on the world stage. So whether the Ukrainians like it or not being an inconsequential thought, I can understand the idea of making it lower.
But really, the people who have to be concerned about this and paying attention to this are the environmentalists. Because these people will not be cold. They will use coal. The environmentalists had to learn that their entire approach doesn't work. They are radicals. If there's not enough oil, people don't go, okay, we'll use less oil. They say, okay, we'll use the coal. They'll burn whatever they have in the house in order to make sure their kids are warm. You don't know this? You think they love dear sweet mother Gaia more than their own children? Well, sure, there are some cultists who who are like that. The vast majority of us, for our kids, do you have any idea what we'll burn? We'll burn uh, the, the, the chairs, the sofa... You know, somebody else's house. (laughs) What will we do to keep our kids warm? And we sure as hell are going to use some coal. People don't go to using less. They'll burn whatever they can find. So environmentalists, get used to it. Oil might be your best bet right now. This is Tony Katz today.